Welcome to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD. Presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. This session of Grand Rounds Nation is provided by the American College of Osteopathic Family Physicians, or ACOFP. Speaking is Dr. Susan Zito, faculty rheumatologist at the Largo Medical Center in Largo, Florida. Thank you. I am very honored to be invited to talk about fibromyalgia. And you guys might be cringing because that's what this topic does to most providers and practitioners. But my goal is hopefully to educate you on some of the new pathophysiology that's been discovered with this condition to help you see it in a different light and hopefully understand a little bit more about the mechanism of action behind the diagnosis so that you're better able to treat this condition and have a little bit more um, confidence with it with your patients as opposed to um, wanting to avoid it, which if uh, people are honest has been the case in the past. So it's very exciting to be able to help these patients. And like I said, the learning objectives are basically, again, just to quickly review the formal diagnosis of fibromyalgia and some of the comorbidities that go along with it, as well as some of the great mimickers. Um, in rheumatology, I mostly always see secondary fibromyalgia. It's very rare that I don't come across the primary reason why the person has had chronic pain for such a long time, where fibromyalgia has become a, a neuronal hyper excitatory state. And there's a lot of discussion in the journals currently that perhaps it should even be taken out of the realm of rheumatology and perhaps put in the realm of neurology because of that pathophysiology. And then we'll talk about some of the treatment options. So it's actually been around a long time, 1904. It was referred to as fibrositis, and um, I believe everything was rheumatism back then as well, with gout grouped in there. And then in the 70s, um, Madofsky and some co-workers were able to describe some associated comorbidities, including some sleep abnormalities, and um, started suggesting that the CNS system might be involved, which is what we understand it to be today. And then in 1977, there was some diagnostic criteria proposed for the disease, and in 1990, the American College of Rheumatology actually decided to own the condition and came out with diagnostic criteria for the main purpose of clinical trials. As you know, you don't want clinical trials to have confounders in there, so I'll go over the whole um, premise behind the tender points, which actually doesn't make a lot of scientific sense. As you know, there's nothing special about these 18 tender points. It is just to um, dissipate any intervariability that might happen in clinical trials. The idea is basically five pounds of pressure in any one area um, above, below the waist, on both sides of the body, that produces the sensation of allodynia, or an expected over-the-top pain sensation, is basically what you're trying to achieve with these 18 tender points. In fact, I rarely in clinical practice even go through the 18 tender points. I did when I was doing some clinical trials. But when you're with a patient, you can accomplish the same thing by basically just putting your hands on them, doing a range of motion with certain joints, stethoscope for the central sites, um, and you can demonstrate if they're retracting or having some features of uh, allodynia or fibromyalgia. 
It needs to be going on for over three months. It needs to be a chronic thing. Um, and that also is in the criteria. And often patients will describe it as widespread pain. And um, if they're kind of filling out one of those homunculus drawings for you, they're going to draw above and below the waist, both sides of the body, to demonstrate areas of their pain. And that's basically the idea behind the 18 tender points. Um, the other thing, as they noted in the 70s, was this idea of sleep disturbance. And that's because we understand there's a lot of brain chemicals involved. And these come about with stage 3 and stage 4 sleep. And it's a, a circular entity where if you're not getting enough sleep, you're not going to have enough of these neuromodulators. If you have a lot of chronic pain, you're going to be utilizing these neuromodulators. Um, and so there is this feedback cycle. Is one absolutely causative of the other? You know, they're not certain, but um, definitely look for and ask about patient's sleep. Fatigue is also among the common complaints because if you're in chronic pain, you often have complaints of fatigue. And then stiffness, and this is where you really have to be certain to rule out that there isn't some other rheumatic inflammatory condition going on. And the hallmark of that would be someone that responds to a low-dose prednisone or medrol trial. People that have regular osteoarthritis or um, musculoskeletal disorders that are not of an inflammatory nature should not have any benefit from steroids at all. So if you have someone with chronic widespread pain and you give them an empiric trial of prednisone medrol, 5-10 milligrams, and they seem to have a dramatic response, even if they don't have a high sed rate or CRP, you might want to start thinking that maybe they have an underlying inflammatory rheumatic condition as the source of the original pain that then caused them to get secondary fibromyalgia because the neurons have become hyperexcited, which I'll explain later. And then all of the mood disorders and cognitive difficulties that come along and are seen with this disorder are um, married along with the whole cycle of not sleeping and being in chronic pain and then having the periphery use up these serotonin, dopamine, um, COMT, norepinephrine uh, molecules that are needed in the brain for well-being and cognitive functioning. When I lecture, I'm often asked if this is a phenomena seen in uh, just the United States, but no, there is a worldwide prevalence of fibromyalgia, and um, it exists in uh, developing countries as well. Again, look for the patient that has a lot of these so, uh, associated um, comorbidities, such as numbness, tingling, paresthesias, irritable bowel syndrome, headaches, trouble um, concentrating, even sometimes esophageal dysmotility, um, which can commonly occur from the Sika syndrome that comes about by some of the medicines that are attempted to be treated. Even interstitial cystitis has been uh, found to be higher among patients that have fibromyalgia as well. And this is a costly entity because these patients um, that develop this hyper-excitable neuron state then are becoming body aware. And when someone has body awareness, they are going to be complaining about these other entities more and often diagnosed with um, these comorbid conditions. 
uh, lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, and really it should say inflammatory arthritis, for which there's over 30 different kinds, including the bowel-associated inflammatory arthritis. That's anyone who has Crohn's or ulcerative colitis is um, probably at risk for an enteropathic arthritis, which um, often mimics RA on an MRI, but not necessarily in the labs. Anyone with psoriasis could possibly have psoriatic arthritis. And again, this would set up the camp for an eventual diagnosis, perhaps, of secondary fibromyalgia syndrome. I like to explain to my patients the way the nervous system works is we're hardwired, put your hand on a hot burner, and it's going to send a message back to your brain of pain. And now imagine that there's this hot plate, maybe that's rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, bowel disease with the arthritis, whatever the chronic pain state is, and you can't take your hand off of it. The nerves keep upregulating to try to tell the brain that there is something that needs to be done about that original source. If that original source is never found, these nerves continue to be upregulated. And all of the medicines that are approved now for fibromyalgia are actually aimed at downregulating the nerves um, and the sequencing in the CNS. However, it's very important to still continue the quest for what is that original hot plate source, what did it in the first place. So in chronic pain, as I've alluded to already, the central nervous system basically is remodeling. It's very dynamic. Uh, these nerve endings, I explained to the patients, are like a checkout at Walmart, and there's only two cashiers open, and there's a crowd. The manager is going to open up a whole bunch of more checkouts. And then once that crowd gets through, if a couple people come up, they're going to zip right through the line. And that's actually what the body does. It upregulates receptors like this. And so these medicines are not just to alleviate, or, or these treatments are not just to alleviate some of the pain, but also they, they can downregulate the amount of checkout or nerve receptors that have been opened. So this can eventually, over time, help them downregulate, which is important. So sensitization is this idea where there's stimulus intensity and a normal pain response, and then you have some sort of injury or insult, and then you become oversensitized, basically this allodynia and hyperesthesia, where then sometimes you might not even have noxious stimuli, and it will elicit this response. And they actually have uh, mapped this out in the CSF fluid, is what I'm uh, lead alluding to as well with understanding the mechanism. They found higher levels of substance P as well as glutamate, and then brain-derived uh, neurotrophic factor as well that all um, upregulates these uh, receptors. Um, it's actually threefold higher in people with a fibromyalgia type of um, uh, tender point and diagnostic criteria. And they were actually able to see this on functional MRI where um, you've got normal controls and different areas of the brain are um, lighting up more excitedly in people that are sensitized. The theory behind this, as you remember from medical school, is the ascending and descending pathways in the uh, CNS, starting with the dorsal horn, which is responsible for the, the pain mechanism, where first you're going to have a, an impulse from the peripheral nerves. It's going to go up the ascending pathway, uh, be processed in the brain, and then down the descending. And this is where they're seeing all these um, channels and receptors and um, this is where all the medicines are working. 
So Gracely um, actually was the one that proved this on the functional MRIs, where they applied the five pounds of pressure to the thumbnails of people that have uh, fibromyalgia and people that are controlled. And then they basically took a look at what areas were activating. And it, it is very little um, pressure that's applied, but it is activating all the pain centers for the people that had uh, fibromyalgia diagnosis versus the ones that were controls. And so this was not only found in the, the primary somatosensory cortex, but also the inferior parietal lobe and the secondary somatosensory cortexes as well. Like I said, also, they were able to extract the CSF fluid, and they saw three times higher level of substance P and glutamate. Um, so this is uh, not just a clinical diagnosis. There is science and pathophysiology behind it. Uh, the brain-derived neurotropic factor as well is, uh, has a positive correlation with this um, uh, pain experience with higher levels of glutamate as well. So um, looking in the CNS and where these are uh, acted upon, they were able to see all these um, channels and receptors where these medicines are working. So they now call it a wind-up theory, and this is um, very simple to explain to the patients. And also it's very helpful for them to understand that these medicines are actually down-regulating and serving a long-term purpose to eventually help them get better. Because for the longest time, we were just helping them to cope with the condition, not ever thinking that we could have any impactful uh, treatment. Um, but now we understand that we can change the plasticity of the CNS because it is dynamic and constantly remodeling. Um, just like exercise in a person can produce endogenous um, opioids and reduce wind-up, uh, you can chemically do this as well. There's also a lot of um, buzz in the journals about some of the genetics of fibromyalgia. And I think instinctively we've seen this where it seems like um, there's some people that have a very um, high tolerance for pain and others that do not. And some of this is seen in families. And so they're thinking this might actually be coming from some of the polymorphisms that come along with the COMT, catecholamine uh, methyltransferase receptors, um, as well as the ones responsible for 5-HT, serotonin, dopamine, um, and norepinephrine. So the objective evidence um, in all of the pathophysiology of fibromyalgia is uh, supraspinal abnormalities in the CNS, uh, central sensitization, um, psychological factors that can uh, come into play if these chemicals are already altered, um, even some uh, endocrine HPA axis abnormalities also, which are um, being discovered, genetic predisposition, and then the idea of um, a trigger, whether that be an underlying medical condition or some other original source of uh, chronic pain that then causes these neurons to upregulate themselves. And in the past, what has happened is people with all these complaints are given polypharmacy, basically because we've been trying to give them a muscle relaxer, relax the muscle, give them something to sleep better, that would help with the sleep. Um, give them something for pain, give them something for depression. <laughs> and um, on average, when they looked at the original trials, um, patients were on usually uh, anywhere from six to 12 different medications trying to control some of the associated symptoms. 
So the commonly prescribed medications for fibromyalgia um, have been pain medicines, of course. Um, this includes both non-steroidals, COX-2 inhibitors, as well as some of the opioids, muscle relaxers, tricyclics, antidepressants, SSRIs, SNRIs, anticonvulsants. The only uh, three FDA-approved medications currently are Lyrica, Cymbalta, and Civella. Um, but there's a number of others that um, you can use the information in the pathophysiology to help uh, possibly get good results with as well. So the tricyclics actually did have some trials, as um, did muscle relaxers. And Elevil amitriptyline did have some positive results, modest efficacy, and Flexeril as, as well. Um, this one is the preferred muscle relaxer for fibromyalgia because it does have beneficial effects in stage three and four sleep. In the published trials, you can see tramadol was also favorable, whereas opioids were not. So despite the fact that the dorsal horn goes up and opioids act uh, in the brain, there actually is not good evidence to use opioids in patients that strictly have fibromyalgia. Now, if they have um, horrible spine disease or multiple level spondylosis and stenosis and that is the original source of the hot plate pain, then it's appropriate to use opioids for that. Same with rheumatoid arthritis, chronic deformities or something like that. But otherwise, if you're just trying to curtail the pain from fibromyalgia, opioids have actually been shown to have a negative effect for your patients, so you wouldn't want to do that. The tricyclics um, also had some clinical trials that showed efficacy and then a few that did not. So it perhaps might be worth a try in some of the patients, and that's specifically um, amitriptyline and um, uh, Pamela or nortriptyline. The anticonvulsants also had some uh, positives in their uh, clinical trials as well, and this of course is Lyrica, but also the generic gabapentin was demonstrated to have efficacy as well. Of course, it's not FDA approved, however, for fibromyalgia. So this is a summary of the medications with strong evidence being amitriptyline and cyclobenzaprine could be quite helpful, as well as the three that are FDA approved, which is um, uh, Civella, Cymbalta, and um, uh, Lyrica, and then gabapentin, the generic for Lyrica, which actually is not hitting the same receptors, which is why I say uh, it has to be uh, patient-appropriate or patient-tried. Modest evidence for tramadol and then the straight SSRI, the straight serotonin agents. Very weak evidence, however, for um, uh, opioids and um, benzodiazepine, um, hypnotics, uh, even um, melatonin or guafenicin, which in the past were um, popular medicines that people sometimes use to treat their fibromyalgia patients with. So as I said, we have three that are FDA approved. They all work in different um, ways, but they all work on these receptors and the molecules involved in these receptors to help downregulate the CNS. So the trials um, actually required that the patients be pulled off of all the coexisting medications, and that was a very unique entity that was to be applauded for the FDA because it demonstrates that these alone have efficacy in producing results. And um, my goal when I 
tell the patients that we're going to begin trying to desensitize them is that as this is occurring, we should be able to pull you off some of the other support medicines. So the goal is as they are getting relief and the neurons are being down-regulated, then you very actively try to get rid of some of these other adjunctive medicines that have been put on over time. So pregabalin is Lyrica. And this has a different mechanism of action from the other two, Savella and Cymbalta. And this basically is working on the alpha-2 gamma calcium channels. Um, they are uh, voltage-gated in the CNS. This has no effect on the cardiac uh, calcium channels, so you don't have to worry about um, any difficulties with cardiac patients here. Why it is commonly... Um, good in practice to perhaps add this to one of the other medicines, although this wasn't um, studied this way. If you are not getting results with Lyrica by itself or Sibella Cymbalta by itself, you could add one from the other categories because Lyrica is working in the ascending pathways, whereas Sibella and Cymbalta are going to work in the descending pathways. So serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine are the most commonly involved molecule entities that get depleted with chronic pain over time because they are basically being used up in the periphery. And that's why then patients have a tendency to get uh, depressed and um, start showing those uh, features. So if you have someone that suddenly got a chronic pain state, car accident or something, and now they're also acting depressed as well, then you might want to try agents that have serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine, because if they have no prior history of having any anxiety or depression tendencies, then they would be more likely to have all three of those chemicals depleted. Um, if someone has uh, problems then with uh, the dopamine entity, then you might go to Savella, which is primarily norepinephrine serotonin, which I'll show you later. And then, of course, Lyrica has a completely different mechanism of action. It has other indications as well, such as um, adjunctive therapy for seizure disorder and post-herpatic neuralgia, as you're uh, well aware. Um, but that's why I'm saying they can often be coupled and uh, go together so that you might even be able to use smaller doses of um, both of them and enhance tolerability and effects, again, with the goal of down-regulation of the CNS. Uh, Pregabalin or Lyrica, it uh, does not go through the uh, CYP450 cytochrome. Um, Cymbalta does, so anyone with liver disease, you would want to watch that, whereas Lyrica um, does not have any effect and actually was studied with um, several concomitant drugs such as um, Coumadin and obviously the seizure medications, uh, insulin, diuretics, uh, oral contraceptives. It does exacerbate the effects of opioids and um, benzodiazepines. This can be a positive entity in a way because if you have a chronic pain patient that you're trying to help wean down off the dose of opioids, you can use this property of pregabalin in a positive way because it will enhance the effects that they are getting from those medications. The most common um, adverse reactions are going to be related to the CNS and often happen if the dose is initially too high or elevated too quickly in my clinical experience. 
the dizziness and the somnolence is um, a transient effect that is very dose-related. And so when I dose patients, I often start it at bedtime. It takes about three weeks to reach a true steady state. Um, And after the first week, some people are getting over this initial somnolence, but you can use it to your um, benefit in clinical practice because if someone also has the complaint of insomnia going along with all of the difficulties that they're having, you can on purpose use this quality and titrate up so that you're able to get this response for them. Um, dry mouth, constipation, euphoric mood, um, maybe potentially balance disorder, um, those very small incidents. But of course, anything that's acting in the CNS or centrally has the propensity um, perhaps to do these things. Uh, People also might experience peripheral edema with this one, and I'm sure some of you have had experience with this. This also is dose-related and Make sure that um, if people are having this, that you take a look if they're on ACE inhibitors or ARBs, um, because people that are on these medicines will be much more commonly the ones to experience medication limiting peripheral edema or uh, initial weight gain from uh, Lyrica. And perhaps the dose can just be titrated down a bit. So when you take a look at the um, agents then, not that are uh, working on the ascending pathway, but now working on the descending pathway, this is where we're looking at the serotonin, 5-HT, norepinephrine, and uh, dopamine effects on the uh, serotonergic neurons, is what they're called in the descending pathway. And the exact mechanism of this inhibition of the central pain um, is not completely understood, but it it does have to do with downregulating, like I said, substance P and glutamate and brain-derived neurotropic um, factor. So you'll see Lexapro is way on the one end, that is our most pure serotonin agent, So if you're um, wanting to see if that particular molecule is helpful for patients, um, that particular brand name is the uh, most pure or potent of the serotonin agents. And when you come closer to the midline, you're in the area of our Effexors and Pristique, um, and, and that's where Cymbalta also is in the middle. And then you're coming over and you'll see Amitriptyline, Savella, and nortriptyline on the norepinephrine end of things. So if you're looking at serotonin testing, it would be something like Lexapro. If you're looking at a norepinephrine testing, you would want to try something with Savella. And if they seem to do good with both, then that's where the middle ground goes. Um, The trouble with um, the tricyclics is that they're going to hit a lot of the other receptors that can give worse side effects, like the muscarinic receptors and the histaminic receptors, which is why they never were able in clinical trials to demonstrate the um, efficacy, because you need such high doses to be able to hit the receptor effect, and often we're limited by those side effects with the tricyclics. Savella does not have any effect on the liver either. So of Lyrica, Savella, and Cymbalta. Cymbalta is the only one that goes through the liver and has any concern with someone who has liver enzymes or is on statins, methotrexate, um, some other medication like that. 
Uh, Savella is renally excreted, and Lyrica is mostly unchanged. So then in kidney disease, there might be some adjustment that you would want to do with Savella, although that's not one of the recommendations that's necessary in the PI, but you might um, notice that in clinical practice. Adverse reactions with this medication, the real world one is going to be nausea. If you try to um, uh, follow the titration guides, you might um, have better luck if you're starting out a patient on this norepinephrine agent just in the morning, not at night, like they're suggesting. And in my um, experience, norepinephrine predominant seems to be kind of a black and white entity. Patients are either going to respond to that or not, and they're going to know pretty quickly. And the ones that respond to that are actually going to get a little energized from the norepinephrine. Um, and so that's why it would be appropriate to start them off in the morning. Otherwise, you might have complaints of insomnia as well. Norepinephrine is the common one that causes the hot flushing, too, and the um, sweating. People that are on even the SSRIs, because some of them do have some of the hitting of the norepinephrine receptors. If you have a patient that you can't figure out why they're sweating, take a look at their meds and see where it is in that norepinephrine uh, line. Again, in clinical practice, when you're trying to titrate up your response of Civella, if you're starting to get this um, sweating, flushing, sometimes even uh, uh, rapid heartbeat palpitation effect, you might want to just back down on the dosing. The other thing that Savella does is that it, it does actually hit a little of the muscarinic receptors as well. So for the patients that have irritable um, bladder, uh, overactive bladder, cystitis, a lot of complaints like that, Savella actually will um, help with those that will hit some of that receptor. So you will find that patients will complain a lot less about their overactive bladder symptoms. So because that's one of the receptors, muscarinic receptors that is hit more with norepinephrine, you perhaps could use that to your advantage in, in choosing an agent as well. Whereas Lyrica and Cymbalta would have no effect on that. So Cymbalta here, as I um, uh, described, is the one that has all three of the happy molecules, like I try to say to the patients. And this is um, dopamine, serotonin, and norepinephrine. And it has a very good um, demonstrated safety and tolerability, as do most of the other ones. Um, and we're able to demonstrate clinical efficacy in uh, 6 to 12 months, and then holding power up to 3 years, which is basically that that bar was set by the first medication that was approved, pregabalin, and then um, Cymbalta and Savella, which came about later, followed suit with um, uh, trying to demonstrate the same sort of uh, efficacy. It, there's no difference between male and female response, even though fibromyalgia traditionally is uh, more diagnosed in females than it is in males. The adverse events as well going to be uh, associated with the CNS uh, system. Decreased appetite is the one unique thing about Cymbalta as opposed to actually Savella decreased um, uh, appetite too. Both of those you might notice a little bit of um, some eventual weight loss in patients if, as their medicine is titrated to dose. Um, nausea in the beginning with um, Savella often goes away after a week to three, and if the patient is having benefits, you might want to coach them through any of the GI uh, sort of side effects that they're having. 
Um, and same thing with uh, Cymbalta. Headache is common with all of them because, of course, it is uh, acting in the CNS, which are cleared hepatically versus renally. Just remember, Cymbalta is the liver, Savella is the kidney, both of them very minor, though. Lyrica, you don't have to worry about either of them. As far as the kidney goes, protein binding, the one that might interact P450 would be Cymbalta as well. They're all um, linear kinetics, uh, so that is uh, reaching efficacy in about three weeks. We'll return for more from this session of Grand Rounds Nation after this short break.